Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Ingo Walter. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Ingo as a person. Professor Walter is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Okay. Professor Walter is an AIB fellow. His research is in international financial intermediation, banking, and infrastructure finance. He has published papers in many of the top journals in international economics and finance, and is the author, co-author, or editor of 28 books, over 100 journal articles, and monographs. Professor Walter received the Bernhard Harms Medal. He received research grants from Alcoa, Ford, Volkswagen, Rockefeller, Union Bank, and Trust Foundations, as well as the NSF. He has served at various editorial positions at the top finance and financial economics journals, in addition to international business journals such as the GIPS. Thank you, Ingo, for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, first question, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, what did I want to become? I want to become a mechanical engineer. Oh, yeah. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, I found out that I had no talent. And, where, where, where did you grow up? Uh, where did I grow up? I was born in Germany. I was born in Germany. Okay. And uh, my father was a uh, literally a rocket scientist, and he was uh, taken to the UK to okay. build a uh, submarine, the new generation of uh, uh, hydrogen peroxide submarines, and then to the US. Uh, he was a competitor of Von Braun, so he was part of that science uh, hunt. And he ended up as uh, vice president for research for uh, Worthington Pump uh, and uh, started his own business up again in Germany. So he was an outstanding engineer, very creative guy. And the worst thing you could do is try to follow your father's footsteps <laughs> because you almost, almost uh, did destined to, to fail. So I did. So in my first semester, I went to Lehigh University. I got a, a grade point average of 1.06. Uh, and I got kicked out of the engineering school and I had to find some place that would take me. And nobody wanted, wanted me, the psych department, history department, and so on. So I found a guy who was trying to start up a new a major called Foreign Careers. Hmm. And I was always interested in, obviously, international stuff being international, and he would take anybody who had a pulse. And uh, so uh, I joined him, because his name was Finn Jensen, and I suddenly, uh, a whole new world opened up to me, like uh, economics, for example. I've never been exposed to economics in high school, and other disciplines, and uh, so uh, that's where I graduated. I, my second semester, I had 3.92. So I improved from 1.06. Uh, and then uh, I stuck around another year because he and I wrote a book uh, when I was starting when I was junior on the European common market. This is one of the first books that looked at trade creation and trade diversion uh, within uh, custom zones. Uh, that was published, and that then got me interested in staying in academia. And so then I went on to get a PhD and go into teaching, which I never thought I would do. But 
it's, it turned out to be, I guess, if you fail, you should fail spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that opens up a whole new set of horizons that you can exploit. But isn't it like that, actually, people sometimes click uh, in certain contexts. You see that person is failing constantly and continuously in such and such. And all of a sudden, in in, in another context, that, that, that person shines. And uh, it's just exactly like the papers, too. I mean, in uh, many journals, the paper gets rejected. And all of a sudden, it's accepted somewhere. And then it's cited all over the place. Uh, I think it's life. So uh, that's an important uh, lesson, you know. You don't you don't want to write off people because there could may come a time or a circumstance where suddenly they, their value comes up and uh, kind of uh, matches up with the situation, and you get a completely different different outcome. Yeah, I mean, look at your career. I mean, you had a great career in international economics, international finance, yeah. uh, banking. Uh, so. Uh, Something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you, your hobbies? Hobbies? Yeah. Well, uh, hobby was, uh, well, I didn't have much time for hobbies. So uh, we had a, uh, so I started out at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. Um, and we had no campus at that time. There was no building. It was a, an urban campus of the University of Missouri system. And that was a, uh, I guess, a risky move because I had offers from, from Colgate and Maryland and reasonable places. But this was a chance to uh, to build something from scratch. And I was the first economist they hired. Uh, and it turned out to be a very uh, fortuitous thing because uh, you could, you could uh, from a junior level, and that's all I was, was junior assistant professor. We, we built a department of 17 by the time I left in, in 1970. Um, and that was a really valuable exercise. And at the same time, I had to, had to get my research program going. And so I focused on, turns out, uh, an interesting area at the time called uh, on non-tariff trade barriers. And so I developed uh, an index of measuring non-tariff barriers and their tariff equivalents, which then got me a consulting job at the UN in Geneva, which I had in the summertime for about three or four years. And that created a family situation where we liked to travel. And so we would spend uh, uh, maybe three months uh, in Geneva every summer when I was in, in St. Louis. And then they would send me on a mission to Africa uh, usually Africa, I got sent to where the, the, the permanent staff didn't want to go. So okay. uh, they, all, they all wanted to go to East Africa. And I got to cover uh, West Africa. So I got to go to Nigeria and Sudan mm -hmm. and places like, places like that. Uh, and that was really uh, uh, instructive because you're scared out of your mind half the time. Uh, I've never been to emerging market countries before. And, and, like Nigeria is one of the most difficult contexts. So that changed uh, our lifestyle. So every year after that, we spent uh, the summer semester, both when I was in St. Louis and, and back in New York, uh, overseas. And ultimately, uh, 
Jose de la Torre, one of the AIB's uh, stalwarts, was teaching at INSEAD, and he got me a summer thing at INSEAD. And then for the next 20 years, I had a joint appointment with uh, INSEAD until the dean here told me to stop because uh, NCAD, which hadn't been a competitor of NYU, NYU was very different at the beginning than at the end, now became a serious institution. So he saw my face on their webpage and he said, you got to cut it out. And so that was the end of that. But that was still 20 years of uh, a close relationship with NCAD and the con connections that that provided to European institutions and uh, the whole story of moving towards the Euro and all that gave me a really good insight. So, so that was good for the family and good, good for me. Uh, and of course it was uh, totally global, especially when we were looking for another site which turned out to be Singapore in the end. So, so that's kind of, kind of an international guy. Yeah. Uh, just an international stuff. about <clears throat> if you could do it all over again would you do exactly this or would you have a different path would you pursue a different path for, for you well if i had to do it all over again uh, when, when i applied for doctoral programs i got admitted to brown university in economics and uh, princeton and nyu hmm. and i didn't have enough money to accept the brown or princeton one because the stipend wasn't sufficient because I had already one child and another one coming. Um, and so that's why I ended up uh, at NYU under a Ford Foundation fellowship. Uh, Ford at that time was trying to, to professionalize business schools and make them less unacceptable to the arts and sciences. Uh, so I benefited from some big grants that they gave to a bunch of different schools. Okay. I, I think that's... Uh, uh, Turned out to be good because the doctor program wasn't very good at NYU at the time. But they had a couple of really good faculty. One was John Fairweather, who was very active in the, in AIB matters. Uh, another one, Saul Fabricant, who was the founder of the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, so I had sufficient support there and sufficient uh, encouragement. To, uh, to go on from the PhD, and that then led me into the academic direction. Regrets in life, have you got any regrets? What was that, sorry? Uh, something that you wish you would have done or done differently? Uh, yeah, when I, when I left the uh, uh, University of Missouri, I had an offer to come back to NYU, but I also had an offer to be a staff economist on the Council of Economic Advisors, because they were interested in that time on uh, trade matters and so on. And I we talked about it, and the NYU guy said, well, this is a one-time offer. You're not, we're not going to repeat this. Because uh, I wanted to maneuver a deal where I would spend a year in the council staff and then go to NYU. Okay. And they were not, they were not happy with that. Uh, so I, I would have liked to have done that. And I probably would have done okay because I probably would have gotten a good job after the council. But you never know. You can't run the world twice. And counterfactuals are hard to 
construction. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I normally ask about biggest failure and your lessons, uh, the lessons learned from it, but uh, I think I know your answer to this one. What are you most proud of? Proud of? Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, seeing around quarters on economic issues. So I was probably one of the first couple of guys that looked at the intersection between environmental policy and trade. Uh, it's, it's not a difficult argument to make. And now in retrospect, of course, it's become a big question in terms of uh, how it affects comparative advantage, uh, industrial location, foreign direct investment, and so forth, when different countries adopt different uh, uh, standards or enforcement mechanisms. And so I wrote a, a book while I was uh, just still at St. Louis. It was called International Economics of Pollution. And it turns out that if you take a theoretical construct in trade theory and then put on that trade policy, it's a very easy connection to make when you have those differences in production functions that come out of different preferences on environment. And that then later on became, of course, pretty obvious and became of significant interest to policymakers. Who, who paid attention to them? Policymakers or the, uh, the journals, like academic environment or uh, associations? Uh, well, we, we had we had a, a couple of people who were sort of thinking along the same lines, most of which have kind of been forgotten. One guy was Horst Siebert, uh, who was in, in Germany. At, uh, at that time, he was in Mannheim. Uh, and there were a couple of other guys uh, in Washington. So we created a little club uh, that sort of focused on these issues. And uh, a guy named David Pierce, who was teaching at, uh, I think, uh, uh, in, the, in the UK someplace. Anyway, so we had like 15 of us uh, who were interested in this interconnection. Um, coming from different angles, some policymakers, but mostly academic. So I applied to, for a grant to the Rockefeller Foundation to uh, to use their facility in Bellagio in uh, Italy for a conference of these people. And we had enlarged the circle. So eventually, I think we had uh, uh, about, about 18 people, including a couple of well-known ones from from Harvard Business School and so on. And we spent a whole week discussing this and what each person had been working on and where we thought the biggest opening was for our kind of interests in terms of the future and future research. And that that created kind of like an informal talking shop. And so, so Pierce and I, for example, wrote a book wrote a book called International Trade in Garbage. And this is speaking of you know, unusual topics. It turns out that you know the principle of specialization and production, comparative advantage, can be applied to society's waste, just as it can with society's uh, 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 output. And uh, it's had some controversial aspects to it. For example, you should really export garbage to places like Italy, which at that time was one of the leaders in recycling, uh, or export to uh, 
African countries where you have very low labor costs to uh, disassemble electric motors or other kinds of complex waste, which can't be easily separated using air separators and magnetic or whatever. Uh, later on, Larry Summers took this up uh, a long time after that. Uh, and he made this uh, kind of the same statement that, uh, you know, this is a productive thing. It helps close the materials loop. It's good for the environment. It gives people jobs at some multiple of what they otherwise could could uh, could earn. But he got in huge trouble for that. And I think that was during the time when he was a candidate for the presidency of Harvard. And along with some of his other, you know, he, he was a guy that talked before he thought sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so he got blown out of the Harvard presidency. But uh, But he was right. And even now, it's sort of politically incorrect to make this argument uh, that we were working on. But anyway, we got a book out of it and, uh, that didn't sell very many copies, but it tried to make that uh, that argument of, uh, of, uh, of a closed loop recycling system to the extent uh, possible. That's fascinating. How do you come up with these creative ideas? What's the source? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think most of it is uh, is inductive. So you see some some phenomenon going on that, uh, uh, that you know, you've got your toolkit, which is uh, a theoretical basis, and in, in my case, mostly economics and later on finance. Uh, you see some behavior in the in the world, and you try to explain using that toolkit. And sometimes uh, does uh, these open ends that uh, we don't know. So you make policy mistakes and type one and type two errors. Uh, and if if I think that's important enough, uh, then uh, try to do something about it. So one of the things I got uh, got into later on was on uh, corporate conduct and finance. So a guy named Roy Smith and I, he, he was formerly the senior international partner at Goldman Sachs. We got him to retire at 48 to join the faculty. He and I did a lot of work together. So we wrote a book uh, uh, on uh, uh, the internal workings of uh, investment banks and why they keep getting themselves into trouble uh, with respect to trading strategy or with respect to financial unbiased financial advice so with respect to other regulatory issues and that got me into the whole question of of constraint systems and uh, uh, what happens to competitiveness when you press against those systems and violate them no and that later on uh, played very nicely into ESG because ESG is basically a firm that's trying to comply with Milton Friedman's uh, uh, dictates and gets surrounded by a set of constraints on labor markets or capital market behavior and so on. And, and so that's a, a model that you can apply to a lot of the problems that we see uh, today, including, you know, what, what do pension fund managers do with respect to uh, their investment policy with mm -hmm. that in relation to what they think is appropriate ESG conduct versus what the investor, the ultimate investor, for whom they have uh, uh, fiduciary responsibility, 
uh, how you solve that kind of a, a problem. So this is far removed from trade policy. But it, uh, again, it came from uh, this, this issue that you observe in the market or you observe in firm behaviors or possibly legal cases, uh, which uh, you can apply whatever toolkit you got. Mm -hmm. Ingo, uh, in the next five to 10 years, what are going to be the top uh, pressing big issues, big items, big challenges in the uh, facing the IB uh, research domain? Uh, if you were, I mean, you talked about your talk shop or like a think tank. Uh, what do you guys, what would you say if you had your group of 15, 18 people again say, in the next five to 10 years, these are going to be the next big topics? Uh, what would those be? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, right now I would say uh, uh, the political environment that is likely to be based, uh, partly derivative from uh, environmental issues, uh, macro ones like uh, global warming, but also uh, micro ones like, uh, you know, testing uh, uh, releasing radioactive materials from uh, Fukushima res results. Uh, and they, these, uh, these things kind of hit you in different combinations. And the question is, how do you, how do you resolve them as, as a firm when uh, there are no good solutions? Uh, I, have a, I have a student who, uh, now sometimes students really get interested in this. They're also sort of looking ahead. Um, I have a student who's uh, uh, head of the Western Hemisphere for a big German company. Uh, they came around when the Russian invasion came, and that took that 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 was an external variable that nobody had really forecast. Um, and uh, uh, companies started pulling out of Russia. And his board, he reports directly to the supervisory board uh, to the uh, management board, or uh, refused to uh, disengage from Russia, and they still have done so. So he had this question about whether he should resign. There's a fast track guy who's uh, probably tagged for the chief executive role. Uh, and the question is, what do you what do you, what do you do? Uh, in the end, he resigned, had no job to go to, and is now uh, haven't heard from. Him lately. this is only fairly recently. Uh, but that kind of a conflict, uh, I think, is something that uh, we're going to see more of as these currents kind of come together. And there are no clean solutions. And you have to put your marbles down in one, one particular position. And that may be a winner or a loser for you in other dimensions, like your, your ability to earn a livelihood. So these, these kinds of dissonances, I think, are very interesting. But you can't really forecast where they're going to come from. I think the China area is now really pretty, pretty interesting in terms of uh, what's likely to happen with respect to Taiwan. But it's, but it's uh, how, how that affects a particular firm or a particular person in a firm uh, has all kinds of vectors associated with it, which are hard to, hard to forecast. So I guess, uh, you know, I always tell my students the two, the two important rules is, uh, are one, uh, the value of options. 
uh, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, I was asked to give a talk at our graduate thing, but it was a, a video of what lessons would you give to the students. Now, most of the time, this is bullshit because you say, well, you know, this and And so I was thinking, what, what can I say that's not bullshit? So, uh, so I said, uh, number one, remember the value of options. An option is an asset. And when you have options, no matter what happens, especially when you can't forecast uh, the environment or uh, the conditions, uh, that option is, is, is extreme, it's in the money for you. The second one, which is related, is never give more loyalty to your employer than your employer gives to you. So if you're working for a transactional firm like uh, an investment bank, uh, if you get a better offer, quit. Because they'll fire you in a drop of a hat if conditions change. So you have very little loyalty to them and they have very little loyalty to you. On the other hand, you're working for a totally different kind of firm, let's say an insurance company or whatever, then you owe them uh, the same sort of, you're in the sense of fiduciary and they're a fiduciary toward you. You owe them this, this stickiness, especially when you have embodied capital in the, in the, uh, in the individual concern. So most people don't, don't remember that. So my grandkids, they're completely out of, out of whack. One of them works for uh, one of the consulting firms and she's fiercely loyal to that firm. I said, listen, I said, this is the pyramid here, see? And you're down here, see? <laughs> <laughs> and I've been trying to convince her that, uh, yeah, sure, of course you owe them the best job you could possibly deliver and they're gonna pay you a good, a good, a good compensation for that, but they're not gonna be at all concerned about firing 3,000 people if business dries up. And you shouldn't be concerned at all about going to a to a client uh, and you know moving from the consultant to being a, a client person. You know it's 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 a it's a low it's a low loyalty business, uh, and and you don't want to confuse the two because you get screwed. This was fascinating. Uh, there is this guy Harry Frankfurt, and he. He was a professor, I think he's still a professor emeritus at Princeton. He writes on bullshit, this is a theory. The theory is on bullshit. And- uh, What's his name? A, uh, Harry Frankfurt. Uh, Harry Frankfurt. He's, uh, I'm going to send you the book. It's a little uh, book and it's based on one of his uh, uh, papers, award-winning paper in 95. Is he, is he an economist or? or a, He's a philosopher. He's philosopher. a philosopher, but I have in the past maybe two years, I've never read anything more interesting than this little book. Uh, it's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, so my oh, wife sure. and I, we have this, uh, this conversation about the ESG and how <laughs> there's this new push towards it. And these companies are doing uh, all these uh, initiatives and how Milton Friedman is now completely uh, taboo to everyone. But uh, she asked, uh, she started collecting data. She said, you know, let's look at the top companies in the US where they make the most amount of money, their headquarters, and let's look at poverty in their cities, in their neighborhoods. 
Uh, I mean, we uh, we started collecting this data maybe two months ago. Uh, the amount of poverty around the most wealthiest corp corporations are a lot larger than anything else. So uh, yes, they are talking to talk. That yet there is nothing uh, real happening. It is. Uh, that's, uh, that reminded me of Harry Frankfurt's uh, the, the bullshit uh, <laughs> concept. So uh, when you are in the company of these smart people uh, and you're thinking, how do you keep, or is it even the goal to uh, to keep the the conversation contained? How do you con uh, contain the thoughts on one topic uh, with these smart people? Because isn't it the case that ideas just get dispersed? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, one, one of the things uh, recently, well, last couple of years, was this is this whole ESG issue, and so we wrote a book on actually actually two. One was this one with Roy Smith on investment backs, and the other one was with Tom Gladwin. Did did you do you know him? He's uh, Gladwin. His name is Tom Gladwin. He's at, uh, he was at the uh, University of Michigan. I think he's now uh, emeritus. But uh, <clears throat> so I've been kind of passively interested in this whole stuff on uh, external constraints on corporate corporate behavior. And then eventually, uh, of course, the ESG movement started to, to get going. And I was thinking about this in terms of, first of all, how do you measure the outputs? Uh, in terms of ESG, what what is desirable and what's not desirable, and who actually defines that? Yeah, Thomas Gladwin, uh, Emeritus, uh, it's uh, Michigan, Michigan. Michigan. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and so he, he and I had written this uh, this book called Multinationals Under Fire, years about 1988, maybe. Uh, but so that was kind of always in my mind, and uh, so the so the ESG issue. As a practical matter, uh, first of all, tries to take a look at the behaviors, and the question is, uh, uh, who decides that? And you have various deciders, which includes the United Nations and so forth and so on. Uh, in terms of the dependent variable and some kind of equation, which uh, on the left-hand side has uh, E, right? And E is to some extent measurable because it's founded in part on natural sciences and you have some numbers. Yeah. And uh, you can actually, if you have a confined enough situation, I was, I was on a national science, uh, uh, Academy of Sciences panel on uh, uh, stratospheric ozone years ago. And we had an economic uh, an economic committee on that. So the question is, you know, what? And we had a scientific committee. At that time, nobody knew what the ozone effects of chlorofluorocarbons was going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had two panels working in tandem. One, the scientific committee was trying to measure the ambient changes in ozone, uh, and we knew that the laboratory science was there, but we didn't know the natural science was there. And then the economic committee took a look at the costs and benefits of uh, of damage or damage remediation. So there you had a pretty nice story where you could actually measure stuff. It's it's like a and, and we ended up with an agreement called the, uh, the Montreal Convention, 
uh, where countries agreed to limit their uh, uh, their chlorofluorocarbon emissions. Uh, and that's been one of the, I think, one of the most effective international agreements uh, that uh, we've, we've had uh, because uh, everybody agreed uh, on the initial wording and then it got renegotiated, I think, nine times since then. Uh, and the only country that's violated uh, the Montreal Convention has been China. So right now, 85% of the, of the uh, uh, chlorofluorocarbon emissions come China, even though China signed the agreement. So that was a really nice one on the E side. And we see a replay of that now with, with CO2, except it's far more difficult, even though it's still within science. It's a much different, difficult, more difficult problem in terms of measurement and causation and so forth. So E, then you have the S, how do you measure S, right? And, oh. and yeah. And, and this is this it's a component composite of lots and lots of different things um, but uh, some of them are very hard to measure size of boards weight on boards you know all kinds of governance stuff which then slops over into into G so what uh, I decided to do was to write an article uh, called sense and nonsense in uh, ES, ESG which which put me in a bad position with respect to the to the ESG enthusiasts, because it's a little bit like a religion, you know, you, you, you can't really be against it. So I decomposed that, uh, eventually it got published, uh, you can get a copy if you're interested, or it's on the SSRN anyway, uh, which takes a look at uh, the measurement problem, and they're huge measurement problems. Then, uh, question is who does the measuring and can things be measured? Uh, and that depends on the quality of the analysis and the ability of people to actually pick up not only the, the firm itself that you're gonna rate, but also the inputs. So you have to use an input output model. So if X vector is such and so, when you include all the inputs, it might be completely different. So banks are generally considered to be extremely clean, but if you look at the inputs, it's a completely different story. And then G, we have lots of information on that, lots of studies that have been done, a lot of good studies on corporate governance. So then you got, then you got to take all of those, those, those measures, then you have to aggregate them. You have to weight them, right? So you have an aggregation problem and a weighting problem. Who sets the weights? What's more important than what? In order to get an ESG score. And then on the score side, uh, how do you use it? Uh, do you use it for monitoring? Do you use it for uh, uh, corporate governance issues in terms of voting for board board member board directors or or whatever? So so I had I had I didn't have any real problems with ESG as a concept in terms of working inside of the social network, but in terms of creating a metric like a bond rating, that's really what they want. They, they want they, they don't want to think very hard and so you say this is an x this is this company is a 93 that company is a 22 they're both in the same industry uh if we're esg sensitive because we have sensitive investors then we take the second company over the trust company that's uh it's it's simplistic but it leads to the wrong answers in terms of capital allocation. and that's what 
I, I want to ask you a question about this. Uh, I understand how companies are reacting to it, how they are uh, accounting for certain, how they're trying to account for certain contributions to these efforts. But for researchers, uh, there is this, I've, I've observed that people who invested in ESG uh, and equally on globalization versus anti-globalization, nationalism, pro populism, uh, researchers are very emotional about these things. Yeah. They are giving very much emotional responses that are uh, unexpected. Well, why is that? Why do they become so uh, angry? Well, this is a, it's, a, it's a real problem because, because I, I got probably more, more uh, nasty grams when I first put this paper on SSRN than can anything else I ever did. And it was all of your kind of uh, argument that this is wrong, because it's wrong. That's why it's wrong. <laughs> so they would, would, they, would, they would argue about measurement issues that everybody has to confront, hmm. uh, which are, which are the assessment is relatively objective, but their, their emotional position, if it conflicted, their emotional position overrode the scientific approach to what we were. And this is still, still a problem today, I think. Uh, what I don't object to is, uh, is having uh, transparency. Uh, that uh, when you invest in a company, then you have information about behavior in different parts of the ESG, uh, across the ESG spectrum. I don't, I don't think if, that, if that's material information for shareholders, I don't see any problem with uh, with providing that, uh, but in terms of using that as investor guides, uh, you know, you, you look at the, the ESG funds nowadays. A lot of them are just marginal, just a small change in the portfolio, uh, and you call it an ESG uh, driven fund. And it's just marketing gimmicks. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more, and a lot of people are interested, and they don't really care what the quality of the observations are, uh, whether or not the dependent variable is in line with their own values. Uh, they're just given a number and they say, oh, this is a six and that one's an eight. And so I'll take, the, I'll take the eight, right? So, so I, that's why I called the article sense and nonsense. There's, there's, there's good sense in there, but it's also a lot of nonsense. And a lot of it's just human nature. People like scores. You know, your, your titles are great, actually. Your titles are uh, quite impressive. Um, okay, uh, about advice, what what is the good what's the good advice to give to junior faculty and young scholars, young PhD students uh, early in their careers? What to do, what not to do? Well, uh, I'm sort of sort of conflicted because I'm kind of polluted by my own experience. Uh, and, and, and I've been too broad, I'd say probably. On my gravestone, I'll say too broad. <laughs> I've take, taken up too many different topics that I got interested in, uh, not simultaneously, but sequentially over a career. So the kind of uh, distinction that I would aspire to as an economist I was never a candidate for. You've got, you've got to drive deeply into a particular topic and have the insights to push the topic forward. But I, as, as you can see, it's kind of dilettantish in terms of maybe six or seven things that I've done. 
mm-hmm. over, the, over the years. Uh, but I like people who do that uh, because they they develop uh, a kind of a broad view, and sometimes they can arbitrage that. So they've been maybe working in this area a couple of years ago, and they're now really interested in some other area. But there are insights that you can push across that. Uh, and uh, we have there are very few people who can do both. There are some, but there are very few people who can do both. They're either very narrow or very or, or somewhat broad. And usually that goes with the life cycle. You, you, you've got to start. You've got to start drilling down in order to to win your accreditation and then after that you've been but by that time you've lost a lot of your imagination so this is a this is a, a, a problem so I'd, what i'd like to advise young people is you've got to have the depth to make make your bones right which at our place you know we have a 50 percent acceptance rate ultimately people we never hire anybody that we don't think will make tenure and 50 percent do about 50%. So this is a 50% failure rate for, for us. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the, the contribution in a very narrow area that will get you over that hump. Then by that time, you're 36 or 37. And the question is, can you then move into multiple areas and make these kind of broad gauge uh, contributions? On the other end, there's also something positive about this. It is one thing to say too broad, and maybe the uh, people think there's a problem with the word broad, but actually the issue is with the word too. Instead of too, it is really, really broad, actually it's quite positive. So, um, yeah. But can you, but as a young faculty member, you know, we have quite a few doctoral students and I talk to them and they, Many of them were really, really imaginative and, and kind of creative, but you can see that being driven out of them <laughs> as, they, as, as they, they try to succeed as a doctoral student. There, there's some exceptions to that, and there are also some, some uh, I think, very successful exceptions to it, but it's really quite, quite rare. And it makes, it makes for a more interesting person if, if, you, if you have some breadth in here perspective on things. Uh, Ingo, for the sake of time, my last question. Is there a question I should have asked you about heaven? Uh, no, I think you're, I think you're right on. So okay. Right. Thank you very much for your time. This was very okay. insightful. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, thank you. Good luck with your project. Thanks.